right. Well, thank you. Thank you to Luke, and thank you for uh, the privilege it is to be here and to carry on in uh, the series here on... I was going to lift that, but I think I broke it. I'm sorry. Uh, the series on, on 1 Corinthians. Um, uh, I th- one of the things I failed to mention was that Aubrey and I and our kids, that uh, we are members at Trinity Church Tonsley, so we're not very far away, and so it's a real privilege to bring Trinity Tonsley's greetings to you, and I think it's, I think we have a very special relationship. You know, we are close neighbors, but have a common vision of what does it look like to live as God's people in, in this area. So it's a real, it is a real privilege, and I, and I, I love this church. I, you know, this is my first time actually attending, but I know so, I feel like I know so much about it through my ministry at the college, because I've had a chance to teach some really great students who come from here, like Luke. Um, actually, I was really worried that he was asking me here just so at the end of this sermon, I'm going to get some sort of grade on how this sermon goes. Uh, but I've had, yeah, had the great opportunity with some gr- really great students. I get to work with Mandy Kruger. Um, you guys know Mandy. You know, she has the largest smile. Like, it's one of the things that you can see from space. It's like Great Wall of China, Mandy's smile. There, there they are. So, uh, but it is a, um, re- yeah, it's a real privilege. Uh, you know, and 1 Corinthians is such an important book. It is, you know, Paul's letter to this church, and they are dealing with some real things. You know, and I, as, I was, as I was preparing for this, this sermon, you know, the very first part of, of Corinthians is about division. These rivalries that have cropped up in this church. Uh, And it doesn't take very much imagination to think about our own lives and our own world and thinking about the divisions that there are. You know, we read the news and we read about the divisions that are actual huge, massive wars that are going on. Uh, Likewise, just the way outsiders view the church. Actually, our, our, our ministry and our mission are at times halted because it appears that the church itself is divided. But then we think about not only the church as a whole or universal, but, but maybe even our local congregations, the divisions that rise up within. And so this is an, a hugely relevant book for you to study, and it's a real privilege to, to be able to uh, be in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. So if you have your Bibles, please keep the Please open back up to there. Anyway, so Luke took you through the beginning of Paul's letter last week where he is addressing this problem, these divisions, these rivalries that have cropped up in this church at Corinth. And it's all about whose camp are you in? Who's, who's, who's your tribe? You know, Are you in Paul's camp? Are you in Cephas's? Are you Apollos? Are Christ? And it looks like there's a kind of a sense of pride and of rivalry of who was involved in your salvation. And that, that there's some sort of hierarchy in that. Okay? That, you know, who, who led you to Christ? Who baptized you? It would be like, you know, which elder here at City Reach was the one who put you in the water. And therefore, you have some sort of special place within God's kingdom. Whose small group are you in? Oh, you're in Roger's small group. No, but Paul urges the, the church right away that there should be no rivals. And he makes the obvious point in verse 13, doesn't he? Is Christ 
divided. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Which is, you know, ludicrous. Of course Christ is not divided. And of course Paul did not die for you. I mean, his point is that followers of Christ should follow Christ. Like it's, we're Christians. It's literally in the name, okay? Paul was not crucified. He didn't baptize you in his name. In fact, Paul makes that point. I'm sure that Luke made, the, uh, you know, last week was that uh, Paul didn't even remember who he baptized. So it's not like he's keeping score. He thought that it was only one household. Okay. And actually, he says the reason that he wasn't kind of preoccupied with the one being doing the baptizing was actually that his, his calling from God was actually to be the one to proclaim the message, to proclaim the good news of Christ. Okay? And so Paul had a very particular mission. It was to preach the message of salvation. Okay? Now, and further, he wants to characterize the way he taught, that he did not teach with eloquent, with eloquent wisdom. Okay? So he wasn't a part of a particular way of, of convincing you of it. Actually, he wanted to speak very plainly about it. That way, you weren't, you weren't fooled into this message by being kind of enamored by how he said it. He wanted you to wrestle with the content of the message, okay? And so rather, Paul preached a message that would not take away the power of the cross by focusing on him. He wanted all the focus to be on Christ, okay? And so his message is about magnifying God's wisdom, okay? And so how do, you know, in in light of this, this division at the church of Corinth, how does healing come about? How do you heal a division within your church? Well, Paul Paul here is going to seek unity to the divisions by reminding them of the message of the cross, okay, as as it was read, the message of, of Christ crucified. But we're going to be united by that because that message is a foolish message by worldly standards. But that foolish message is actually God's wisdom. Okay, so first, he's going to remind them about the message of the cross. And then secondly, he's going to seek their unity by reminding them as a church that they have been called by grace. Okay, so first... Being united in the message of the cross, okay? So this is really verses 18 to 25, okay? And and so Paul begins in verse 18 that the message of the cross is viewed as both foolish but also powerful, okay? It's a dichotomy. So look at verse 18. The message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul sees the message of the cross, that is, Christ crucified, as having two contrasting understandings. And that the view of that message, whether it's foolishness or powerful, is dependent upon where you stand in relation to God. In one category, it is those who are perishing. Notice that he uses the present tense here. Those who are perishing. It's going on right now. Those who are perishing, those who are in a a state of death, 
outside of Christ. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross is a foolish message. Christ crucified. It's foolish to believe that that would bring salvation and victory in life. Okay? Now, we, we live in a, we, you know, we live in the West, which the kind of the message of the gospel has swept through and has shaped so many facets of, of, our, of our lives, okay? So we think about the cross, and even, even people who don't proclaim Christ kind of see the cross as Christ's victory, okay? But that is not the way Paul's audience saw the cross. It was scandalous, okay? Because it is a foolish message. A crucified person was a person who was stripped naked and executed publicly by nailing them to a piece of wood. There's nothing more shameful. It is an inhumane way to die. How can that person declare victory? That's why the Romans used it so effectively in the ancient world. It was, shame, it was so shameful that the Romans don't even let their own citizens die this way. But it was an effective way to demonstrate your power to those who needed to know that you held the power. And so the message of a salvation through a crucified man is foolish because it is anti-victory. You died. It defies the logic of being saved. Right? So if you've ever played, you know, I've got two young kids, and so we're starting to play more and more games, which is really fun, but sometimes you play these games, and as the, as the parent, you accidentally win. Okay? And then all of a sudden, you, you, know, you get to the end of Candyland, and then all of a sudden, you know, my son says, I won. And you're like, I don't think so. You know, it defies the logic of how these things are supposed to work, okay? And so to those who are perishing, it is folly to believe such a message. Now, the other category of people that Paul highlights are those who are being saved. So notice again, this, he uses the present tense, those who are being saved. God is working in your life to save you. His spirit is working to sanctify you. And so this message, for them, is not a message of weakness. It is a message of power because God uses the message of the cross to bring you salvation. It is, a, it is, the, cross, it is the cross that makes salvation possible. It is the cross where Jesus pays the debt of sin and death. It is paid. So to those being saved, they know that a crucified Messiah is God's power to bring salvation. And because they know the death that they should pay with their own lives, they know that this message is an eff the effective way that God is saving. Okay? So those two ways, the, f the foolishness of the cross, but also the power of it. Okay? And so the message that Paul is proclaiming here is a message of Christ crucified. Okay? So this is verses 19 to 23. Okay? And he's showing that this is an upside-down kingdom, an inverted kingdom. The gospel kingdom is, does not work like the way of the world. Okay? It, the, the naturalistic way of thinking about power and salvation is flipped. The earthly, earthly way to think about crucifixion is that it is defeat. But the heavenly way of thinking about it is about 
salvation. Okay, so Paul's message is that it is, a, it is a foolish message because a crucified Messiah is the path toward knowing God and being right with him. And that is an absurd thing to the world. It's an inversion for the way we think about power and victory. And so the message, that message that is foolishness because it inverts our expectations of how we are to think about how God reveals himself. How does he show himself to us? He shows it to us through the cross. Okay, so look at, um, and this kind of inverts how, uh, the way we think that this should be done. Paul shows us two ways that some people think it's done. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Okay, so in Paul's day, the Jewish people demanded signs of power to show of God's salvation. Okay? Now, of course, if you read the Old Testament, God does demonstrate great power. You think about the kind of preeminent moment of salvation, the Exodus. God's power is on full display. You think about the ten plagues, crossing the Red Sea, all of it. God's power is immense. But God's power also is demonstrated through another sign. And for some Jews, that sign of death through the cross was something that just could not be squared. Okay? The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day frequently demand signs from Jesus. Show us the signs that you are the Son of God. And Jesus does many, does many signs as well. I mean, some of the, most, the best known are his feeding of the many thousands, healing of the sick and the lame. But yet these were signs that he demonstrated, but yet were not believed by his fellow, by his fellow Jewish leaders. And on the other hand, it's the Greeks who instead seek wisdom. The Greeks were well known for a number of different philosophical schools, and they sought to make sense of the world that they lived in. Okay, They they sought to know how to live in this world, what is, what is the purpose of life. But they would only accept eloquent arguments from particular wisdom traditions. Okay? And so Paul's message is that, that the cross, the crucified Messiah, inverts both those expectations. The demand for powerful signs, but yet not believing them, or, believe, or not believing the wisdom or the message because it lacks a particular rhetorical force. Okay? So Paul's message of verse 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay? So notice first what he says here, our message. Okay, so this is not his message alone, but it's the message that we share in common. Okay? What a powerful thing to say to a church that is divided. Our message. Okay? And then also, it isn't just Jews and Greeks that are excluded. It's actually those who are Jews and Greeks who are called. Okay? So it's our message, and it includes both Jew and Greek. Not those who think um, earthly, 
about the signs of God, but those who have been called by God and who understand the power of the cross. Okay? And so this contrast between earthly wisdom and, that cannot be fathomed with a crucified Savior is, is the kind of power demonstrated that God has planned for. Okay, So verse, verse 21 here. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul's point here is that nobody comes to know God through human wisdom. Actually, it's God's wisdom that the world does not know him through human wisdom. No, God is not known outside of him revealing himself. See, our human sin taints our ability to know God. But God in his graciousness has initiated by revealing himself to us. And so it's God's wisdom, it's his planning to save those who trust in the foolish message of a crucified Savior. It pleased God to save those who trust this message. So you do not know, you don't come to God through human wisdom, you come to him through believing that message. So the path to knowing God is not through our human wisdom, rather it is in trusting the message of Christ and him crucified. As verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the foolishness of God turns out to be the wise plan of God. To reveal himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. To bring salvation through him. And what appears to be weakness because it is, it's death and anti-victory, turns out to be the very means and very power that God uses to bring salvation. So God's wisdom is above human wisdom and always has been. Verse 19 talks about God's promise to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Here's a quote from Isaiah 29 that Paul, Paul quotes in there. It's about God that he's going to you know, destroy the wisdom of his own people. They're seeking political maneuvering to out, kind of outmaneuver the, the judgment that they have coming to them. But God's promise is that no matter, no matter what you try, will be thwarted. You cannot outmaneuver yourself you cannot outmaneuver what is coming to you. And so God's wisdom is above human wisdom. And so those who have trusted in the message of the cross know this to be true. This is why Paul quotes in verse 20, you know, Paul, he calls on the wise, the scribe, the debater, the flock. This is the elite. The smartest people in the community gather them together. It'd be like today if... Uh, you know, it's like a roll call of the brightest and the, the most influential. It's the, you know, the university professor, the New York Times bestseller, uh, the YouTube influencer. You know, all those who, who appear to have every advantage of 
of knowledge and of wisdom. And, God, and Paul is saying God is showing that wisdom to actually be folly. That it is foolishness. Because when we rely on our own wisdom, it is only a mirror of ourselves. It just exemplifies all of our own kind of um, assumptions and presuppositions. You know, the God that we, we pursue looks a lot like us. He tends to tolerate all, the, you know, all of our shortcomings, but none of the shortcomings of anybody else. Okay. Our human wisdom actually makes us the hero of this story. And it places all our relationships solely because of our own efforts rather than in the message of the cross. Okay. So how, how, how should we be united in this division? Well, we're, we're united around our message of the cross, which is Christ crucified. Okay. So secondly, then... How should we be reunited? Is by considering our calling. Okay, consider who you are called by God. Okay, so this is verses twenty-six to thirty-one. Okay, so after Paul has reminded the church of this message, that it is God's pleasure to save those who who trust the message of Christ crucified, not through human power. He now wants the church to reconsider those divisions in light of who of their calling. Okay, so verse 26, consider yourself. Paul encourages the church to consider, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. I love that because it sounds like the, it sounds like what an Australian would say. It's like, you guys are nobodies, okay? Sorry, that sounded probably offensive. I'm sorry, okay. No, it's, it's this, that you got, you consider who you are. You weren't really smart. You weren't really powerful. You weren't born into important families, okay? So you can't look to who you are as the basis of your pride, that you are somehow better than those, you know, those brothers and sisters in your church. So Paul wants the church in Corinth to think long and hard about their status before they trusted in the gospel. So you weren't wise, you had no power, you're not of nobility. Now, of course, he says not many, okay? So he's not saying that nobody comes from a, you know, a privileged background, but he does say that actually as a church, you're, you're precisely, you're your reception of the gospel is not based on who you are. It's not because you're smarter than everybody or you have more access or you have more money. And so you can't look to those things as the means of your division, of, of your pride. And so verses 27 and 28, Paul wants to, okay, consider what, if you are a nobody, consider what God has chosen and why. Okay, so in light of the majority of you not coming from significant backgrounds, consider it. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So God chooses those that the world estimates as foolish and weak and lowly 
Interesting is that God's calling of us as disciples actually reflects the cross itself, right? The, cross, the message of the cross is a foolish message, and the followers of the way of the cross are foolish by the world's standards. Those who he chooses as disciples are estimated as foolish, but the message and those called God uses to shame the wise and the powerful. He brings the proud down by choosing those whom we would least expect. Okay? This is because he chooses the lowly and insignificant. He chooses the nobodies and makes them somebodies in him. See, our, our world looks to where you're born. You know, so how are you valued? Oh, I was born in such and such of a country or a place. We, we look to where we were educated. Part of being in the modern West is about where you were educated. We look to things like job status. These are things that give us significance in the eyes of the world. They, are va- they show our value in the eyes of the world, our standing within the community. What suburb do you live in? Oh, that's a kind of a rough suburb, isn't it? And so when you lack these attributes, your value and significance fades. But those that are of the people of God, God has chosen to demonstrate his gracious salvation. And so if you feel low and insignificant, the greatest significance you can have is not in the, you know, in the eyes of the powerful or the influential. It is in the eyes and the kindness and love of the creator who has chosen you. God has chosen you. Not because of anything that you offer, but just because of who you are, because of his great love. And to those who, of us with the temptation towards self-righteousness or to look to those kind of earthly status symbols, it is a warning. Thinking that we are somebody and that we have great things to offer to God will be one of the things that God will use to humble us. And so it is a reminder of the way God values his people. And now, what is the result of this? If God chooses the insignificant as a way to demonstrate his wisdom, the result is that we have no room to boast in our salvation. We have no room to boast amongst one another, okay? So the result of of God choosing the insignificant is that no one can boast in his presence. God has chosen his people. Yes, he has chosen them in love. There are such amazing stories in the Gospels of the Lord Jesus and his compassion. I love those, especially in Mark's Gospel. He, he, he goes into a, a city or a village and he has compassion on the people that need it. And so salvation is a, it is a gift of grace that is not earned, right? You see, if we, um, you know, the salvation as a gift 
removes all room for boasting. Because if I earned it, if I worked for it, if I was smart enough, salvation is no longer a gift, but it's actually something that's owed. And so you, you don't ask for the gift of salvation. You demand it because it's like a job. You know, you go, to, you go to work, if you go to work, you know, this week, and you weren't paid for that, you wouldn't go and, you wouldn't go and grawl, you know, ask. No, you'd be like, no, I actually, I did this work, and now I'm owed these wages. That's not how salvation works, because it is a gift. And so, because it is God giving it, it removes our boasting, both before him and before one another. It removes the grounding of boasting in his presence. And so if you work for something, you earn it. There's, there's no room for boasting in accomplishments before the Lord. Okay, so consider yourself, consider who you are, and also consider the source of your salvation, verse 30. Now, we frequently... Um, need to be reminded of the source of our salvation. It is from God. At verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ. Because of him. Okay. Um, Aubrey, as I uh, highlighted earlier, my wife, she has the most excellent gift of hospitality. Like she knows how to throw a party. It's so well organized. And uh, I remember we had a, uh, had a birthday party and it was uh, extravagant. And all the food had this great presentation, and I'm there. And really, I think my job was to kind of stay out of the way, right, as she's organizing this, right? And, um, and then all these people come. They come to the party, and they're like, Luke, thank you for this party. It is so good. And, you know, as much as I kind of want to take credit for it, I can't take credit for it because I did nothing for that, Right? And so any credit that I get is just because I happen to be attached to Aubrey. Um, I can't take credit for the party. I only get mistaken credit because we're married. She is the source of the hospitality. Okay, so friends, consider the source of your salvation. It is because God the Father, by his spirit, has brought you into the realm of Christ. Okay. Because of him, you are in Christ, and Christ is for you. Okay. You are in Christ because of God the Father and the Spirit. And look again at verse 30. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and salvation and sanctification and redemption. Those are some very loaded words, which if you're interested, you should come to the Bible college. Um, no, God's wisdom was to provide restoration to himself. Not through human wisdom, but his own. The wisdom of Christ. The wisdom of Christ who was to us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ for you. Righteousness, that's huge theological word, but Humans lack righteousness before God. It's a, it is a big word to talk about being in right standing and right relationship. Because of sin, we have no inherent righteousness before God. 
But God, in his wisdom, has sent Christ as our righteousness. And because of his work, we are in right standing before God. Jesus gives us his righteousness through his work on the cross, that message of the cross. And it is through Christ that we are being sanctified. He is sanctification for us because when he ascends, he sends us his spirit to make us more into his image. God's spirit is working to make us holy, refining us, convicting us of sin, changing our hearts and our affections being made in the image of him. And he is our redemption. He redeems his people through forgiveness of sins. And so Paul's conclusion at this, at this stage is, therefore, lay aside your boasting, verse 31. So the very beginning of, of Corinthians is about these divisions. How to be unified. How do you heal the divisions in your midst. There's lots of ways that we could do this, and I think, and Paul will do more. But at the very beginning here, it is to remind this church to be unified around our message, the message of Christ crucified, and to consider who you are and consider the source of your salvation. Because when we do so, that will remove all divisions. Because we will be forced to lay aside our boasting because there's nothing that we have that grounds any boasting outside of what God has provided for us. So friends, um, my, my encouragement to you is I don't know uh, of any, I don't know what's going on in the life of this church. I think that's the great thing about being a guest is I get to say whatever I want. No, not really. But it is to, to, I don't know, I don't know what kind of relationships you have. I don't know what kind of divisions might be here. But my encouragement to you is to take seriously Paul's message, to be united around the message of the gospel, and to remember who you are in light of that calling. Okay, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for your word. We thank you and we ask that your spirit uh, would use it. Would use it to unify City Reach Marion around the message of the gospel. We ask, and uh, I give you thanks, God, that uh, I consider City Reach Marion great friends. And so we pray, I pray uh, that we would see great gospel fruit in Marion and in Tonsley uh, and throughout your world. And so we ask, God, that you would help us to lay aside all of our boasting and to only boast in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen.